honesty hour, I did not know what I was doing in regards to launching this podcast. And I wouldn't have been able to do it without Anchor. Anchor makes starting a podcast super, super easy and allows you to not only use their platform to distribute the podcast, but you can even go on your phone or computer and record and edit the podcast right on their platform. Best of all, it's totally, totally free. So if you're interested in starting a podcast, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Let's give the audience like an introduction. Like who, who are they listening to right now? Like where, where did you used to work? Like what, give us a little background. All right. Uh, my name is Dre Hayes. I'm one of the co-founders of the foundation. Uh, been in this business since I was 17. I just turned 43 in February. So I guess you're looking at 26 years. Uh, if my math is right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Wow. That's amazing. Boy, that makes me feel old. I guess that's why cats start calling me OG, you know, <laughs> which is, which is kind of a trip too. Cause when people first started calling me OG, I was like insulted. Right. And it was funny <laughs> because it's like, damn, I'm not old. But then, you know, you start to realize you know, that's like a sign of respect. And to some of these guys, I am OG, you know, I mean, you know, people in their early 20s, I'm, you know, I'm as old as their parents, you know, so, uh, you know, it's a trip. But yeah, I mean, I've been in the business for, I guess, over 25 years, uh, started off in retail in Virginia. I'm originally from Virginia Beach, Virginia. Um, I was a system manager and a buyer for uh, a specialty chain uh, back then called Legends, which if I had to compare it to something, it's would be akin to like a Jimmy Jazz or a DTLR. You know, this is before yeah. we had sneaker boutiques. There were no sneaker boutiques. So, you know, back then you went and got your sneakers from Foot Locker. This is before Foot Action was even owned by Foot Locker. So you'd have Foot Action, Foot Locker, Athlete's Foot, and then you would have these independent specialty uh, stores that carried apparel. Well, when we first started with Legends, I mean, they were like the old school champs when champs carried equipment, punching bags and workout gear and weights, you know, yeah. in addition to apparel and footwear, which is so crazy because they even talk about that right now. There's like people that have come up, they would never realize that Champs ever carried any of that because Champs just basically looks like Foot Locker now, you know. Yep. But, uh, you know, that was the space I came up in and, you know, and I really was in the right place uh, at the right time. It was like 94 when I started working there. And that was right around, let's say, the urban fashion revolution, because, you know, it began with Cross Colors and then Carl Kanai, right? But then during 94, 95, that's when FUBU, Mecca was around, um, Echo was just starting, Fat Farm, you know, this pre-Rockerware, pre-Sean John, you had Dada Supreme, um, probably Lugs with footwear, and they were making apparel. Rego Sports, a bunch of different brands, PNB Nation, Triple Five Soul was around back then. So that was like the beginning, right? And uh, and I got an opportunity. I was still in high school. It was my senior year of high school. I started buying for the for the store that I worked for. And there were 23 stores in the chain. And by the time I was a freshman in college, I was buying for about 16 of the stores in the chain. Myself and one of my other partners in the foundation now, uh, uh, Antoine, who actually hired me. Interesting enough how life works. He was actually the assistant manager when I came there and applied for the job. And they ended up hiring three people. And I was one of the people that was hired. The other two people that were hired, they they because he went to school in in uh Norfolk. He was actually at Norfolk State then. 
But the other two guys that were hired, they were, I think they were still in high school. I was the only person that got hired that wasn't known, right? And I got hired because I had a lot of work experience. You know, I had always been working since I was 13 years old, but it's just funny how life works. You know, he said, hire this guy. And then 20, you know, 23, uh, 26 years later, we're still business partners. We're still in this business together, right? So it's just, you know, talk about life. It's like forks in the road. You go left, you go right. Or the fact that with me even getting that job, I already had another job at like a neighborhood family footwear store. But then they called me after I had already went to orientation for the other job. I was really set to start. And that job was closer to my house. Like that job was easier for me to get to. I could go to school, get home from school. I could walk to work. You know, my mom had just got separated from my stepfather, like at the end of my junior year. So we had moved into a new house, still still in the school district. We had one car. I didn't have a car yet. So in order for me to take this job, but the, the job in Legends was at the mall and it was the mall. You know, this is back when all the kids wanted to work in the mall. It's so crazy how the world is today because now everybody doesn't even want to work at the mall anymore. You know, you want to work at a boutique. There's just so many different things about how the world has changed, right? Yeah. But I ended up getting this job and it was a burden pretty much on the family for me to take that job. So I used to have to get up early. Uh, oh, no, we, we would get up. I would go to school. No, no, I'm sorry. I, I, I remember it right. I used to get up, take my mom to work so I could have her car, right? Mm-hmm. Then I would drive to school. I got out of school early during that time. I was taking as many hours as I could. I would drive to work. Then when my mom got off work, my mom would come get her car, right? And then at night when it's time for me to go home, she would come and pick me up. And we did that until I was able to buy my own wow. car, you know, so just so I could work at the mall and have the cool job. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, and it's a trip. And when, when I really sit back and look at it, but, you know, that job and being in that environment really shaped my whole career, you know, put me in a position where I was able to buy, like, you know, most people aren't buying when they're in high school for, for, um, for a retail store, right? And, and you know, and being there early, like the first brand I ever bought for the shop was FUBU, when the oh, reps wow. used to come into the shop, you know? So not only was I buying, uh, you know, these different apparel brands, but then also because we carried sneakers, you know, I was on the Timberland appointments, you know, I used to get to sit into Adidas. Nike, I didn't get, at that point, you know, Nike, Nike uh, I wasn't sitting in on the Nike appointments, but the Adidas, the Timberland, the Clarks, uh, you know, a bunch of the other brands we were doing. It was uh, it was fun. It was like uh, you know, it was like getting a degree, right? You know, learning retail, especially the way I learned it as a buyer and as a manager. You know, that was like getting a degree in retail, right? And it, even during the time I was in college, and then after I got out of college, I went and uh, flipped over to the wholesale side of the business and went to work for this company called RP Fifty Five Inc which at that time, they owned two brands. They owned RP55, which was a brand from that era. And they owned Azure Dental, which they were just starting. And I became a sales rep for the Midwest and the Mid-Atlantic for Azure. And Azure is a, was like a premium urban dental brand uh, that was started around the same time as academics. You know, so, and it, and it did pretty good. Men's and women's dental. The, the jeans were, you know, we were selling $120, $140 jeans. And this was, at the point when, uh, you know, jeans being that price was crazy, right? I mean, I still remember being in uh, in Michigan, actually, in Birmingham at Caruso Caruso, 
I was on the road the first day they got their seven jeans in. And when seven first launched, they sent all of those elite denim retailers seven pairs of jeans. And I was there trying to get him to buy my brand on the day that he received the seven, which is crazy when you think about it and think about what seven became and how big it was. And, you know, it's just the space was just different. You know, I guess when you've been around for a long time, you know, it's like always these little interesting places you are, these little interesting things that happen, right? Yeah. yeah your story is dope, dude. I was I was reading in a, an interview, I think from like 2009 that you did or something like that, or referring back to 2009. And you said you'd love to get more vertical just in the industry. Like you'd love to own your own brands, I think is what you meant by that. And I think now you do, if I'm correct, looking at your site. Yes. So- is it- yeah, yeah. So th- that's exactly what it was when uh, in 2009. Yeah, because I moved to New York at the end of 05 and started the museum group. So myself and Antoine started the museum group, which was pre-foundation. Right. And then my other two partners, Ari and Daniel, started the Vanguard group in 07. So all of 06, there was just a museum group. And I had like a, in the building where we were we had like a third of a floor, right? And then at the beginning of 07, Daniel had worked for a, a company called In Denim We Trust. It was a distribution company. It was based out of Montreal. And, uh, you know, they distributed different brands like Red Monkey Jeans. Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, not Red Monkey. The Year of Denim. There was a few other brands. One True Saxon. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't even remember the other brands he did. And my other partner, Ari, was a global brand director for PRPS Dental at that time, right? So when he left his job, they started the Vanguard Group. I took a larger floor and subleased a third of the floor to them, right? Mm -hmm. So it was the Museum Group and the Vanguard Group. And people used to always refer to as Museum Vanguard because, you know, we were always (laughs) together. And the plan was always to come together. But when they left, we already had launched uh, Creative Recreation Footwear and we had Crooks and Castles. So those two brands, even though you know the plan was to come together, we had these businesses that we had already started. And the idea was as we started to bring in new things, we would put them together. And uh, and so during that time, you know, that was foundation, uh, let's say, and then in 2008, we officially became the foundation under name. Although technically halfway through 2007, when we first picked up WSC, let's say the foundation kind of already existed. We just weren't calling it that. Cause we always yeah. moved this one unit and uh, you know, we have three different versions of our, of our company. Like it was version 1.0, which was the sales and consulting agency when we were just doing sales and consulting. And we, we had to do a lot of co- consultation for streetwear brands in particular, you know, cause at one point, I mean, we had, we had did uh, Crooks and Castles, Information, Stussy Deluxe, A-Life, Huff, Swaggering Phenomenon, um, and Hell's Bells. So, you know, you look at all the streetwear brands we were involved in, and most of these brands were not well-structured for business at that time. So, you know, we were doing a lot more than sales. And then in addition to that, you know, we had Creative Recreation Footwear, which we were more involved with them than sales as well. So really the plan for us one day was always to, originally it was distribute brands and own our own brands, right? Um, But it took us a long time to get there. And part of the reason why it took us so long was because honestly, we were distracted. 
And part of it was because we always had good brands, right? We were always repping good brands. We always had like meaningful businesses. So we went from version 1.0 to 2.0. So version 2.0 of the company was when we started doing like full distribution. So the first brand we did it with was uh, was Super Sunglasses, right? Because Super Sunglasses came to us and they wanted us to be the distributor. Well, we didn't have the money to distribute the brand. Plus, even if we would have been a distributor, the price point would have been too high because we would have had to take it. Like back then, distributor margin was you would take product at 25 to 30% off wholesale and then you bring it to your country. And usually you raise the price some to get your margin up. So we came up with a strategy where RP55, same company that I had originally worked with, they own their own business. They, they had RP55. And then uh, at that point, did they have a coup? They had RP55, Indigo Red. They might've had a coup at that point with TI. That may have been the beginning of them doing a coup. And we got them to handle all the backend logistics, the customer service, warehouse the product, do everything while Super out of Milan, Italy, owned their inventory. So it was kind of like a distribution deal, except for we weren't the distributor. So the brand still owned their merchandise. It just sat in a warehouse here. And then we acted as like the brand managers in the U.S. We were the brand. It just, we didn't have any ownership. And this actually worked well for us because it allowed us to do Super Sunglasses. We also did uh, Zound, which is the company that owns Marshall, Home Audio, headphones and speakers. Urban Ears. We had another shoelace brand called Mr. Lacey. We did a handful of different brands during that time. And that was like the version 2.0, which allowed us, you know, some independence and allowed us to take some brands that we would not have even been able to do in the U.S. Also during that time, that's when we were partners in G-Shop uh, in the distribution. We were 50-50 partners with RP55. Um, we also did that with Denim. We also had, uh, there were a couple of other products. Yeah, yeah, there was a couple of other projects we did where we didn't have any financial or logistical responsibility for the brands. They were like like G-Shop, for example, that was our deal. We were the ones that connected with Casio. We basically put the the deal together to get the brand, but we didn't we couldn't finance it. So RP55 was our partner, you know, our financial partner and our logistical and operations partner. They did a uh, you know, the, the only way we could even do the brand was to be partners with them. And, you know, it was people that we trusted and we still do business with them to this day. But that's version 2.0, where we always had a partner for whatever we did. Now, version 3.0 is what we're in now. And this has been for the last three years where we actually have the ability to be completely vertical on our own. So if you look at a brand like Kappa, we're the U.S. licensee. So we we have the warehouse, which we use a 3PL. But we provide all the logistics. So we buy the goods from overseas. We bring it in. We, we warehouse it in our own warehouse. We finance the production. We handle the marketing. We handle everything. We run the websites. And everything is done through our company. So for that, we don't have a partner. And if we do have partners in this model, we're actually the operational finance logistical partner. Now, even in this version of the company, we're still partners with RP55 and uh, Pharrell's team and BBC in the distribution for the United States, right? We still have some things that that are outside of our new business model that still exists. But for the most part, the new business model, like when you look at a brand like Rocket, 
we're we're the partners in Rocket. We, we own that brand with uh, the original guys that founded Rocket. And you know, and our role in that is we handle the sales, we handle the finance, we handle the operation, they handle the creative, and then we collaborate on the marketing together. And you know, and that's really the direction we're moving in. And you know, we keep it diversified. So some brands will be a license. Some brands will be the distributors where we just, you know, buy the goods from the brand and and we own the distribution in the United States. Some brands will own outright. And, you know, so that model, but whatever model you look at from that, it's all a vertical model. Like, you know, we're not really in the business of repping brands anymore, which was originally what the foundation did. We were sales agents, sales and consulting agents. You know, it's just, it makes more sense for us to be vertical. Yeah. That's so dope. I think the, like, there's a ton of things that we can take from your story. Um, we have a huge audience base that's, they're, they're struggling with how you, how to get to the point of, okay, I have an idea. I have this idea. Now, where, where do I find that? Where do I find that, um, motivation to actually say, you know what, I'm going to go through with that, this idea. Where, where'd you find yours? Oh man. With which particular idea? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I'll tell you what, man, I just, I've always been a very driven person. Um, You know, I'm, I'm like one of those people I'm, I'm like more, 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 more. It's like, yo, they always, we always crack the joke. It's like the greedy salesman, right? Yeah. You know, you know, a great salesman because they're always going to want more. But it, and it's not for me, it's not about greed or anything like that. I just really wanted to be successful. So, like, for example, when I first became a sales rep, when I was at Azure, I was actually first hired to help the, one of the owners with like production. And they just had me in there. And he told me, and this is something I joke about to this day, because, you know, I still talk to him. We're, we're, uh, <laughs> we're still close. He told me he didn't think I could be a salesman. Because he thought that I was, he said he thought I was too nice. That's exactly what he said. And back then, the sales game was different because it was uh, like the, the garmental salesman era. So all the salesmen were older gentlemen, very professional. Um, you know, the business was a little different. I, I would say the guys were tougher, but I was so offended by the fact that he told me I couldn't do anything, I couldn't do something, that I went and did it and I became a great sales rep. But I always knew I could do it. So, you know, it's like, you, you know, you have different things that push you or drive you to do things. Like when when I moved to New York, um, part of the reason I wanted to move to New York was because although I was a successful salesman in the mid-Atlantic, in the Midwest, I had a, a booming territory. I was making good money. You know, back then, it's not even like the world is today. You know, if you weren't in New York, L.A., London, Tokyo, Milan, you know, Paris, you weren't in the main arena, right? So, you know, I wasn't in the place where I would be able to do what needed to be done. And then like, you know, I know I've mentioned the story before and y'all probably heard it, like my BBC story, that's real. I'm from yeah. Virginia Beach, you know? Um, I'm from the area where Pharrell is from. You know, I grew up, Pusha T, live neighborhood right across the street. We're basically from the same neighborhood. Like, and it's, you know, I, I wanted to be the one selling that brand. I came up in this business, I operated at a high level, but, you know, in my ignorance, you know, the agency that got it the first time, Select Showroom, they were pretty much the number one men's showroom in the world at that time. They were based out of New York. They were op- they opened an office in L.A. They were on the stage. 
So, you know, I wasn't there. So I was like, you know what? If that happens again, I want to be the one that gets this brand. So the only way you can do that, you have to change your circumstance. So move to New York, set up, you know, and it's just whatever process there is or whatever needs to be done to make a change. Like right now, I live in L.A. In August, I would have lived in L.A. for three years. Well, if, if you guys recall what I just said earlier, version 3.0 really started three years ago. Mm-hmm. Me moving to L.A. and one of my other partners, Ari, he moved out here in September. But me, me moving to L.A. was the right thing to do for our business at that time, because our whole operational and logistical infrastructure that we built so that we can be vertical exists in L.A. So it's just, uh, you know, it's just just dr- driven, man. I don't know what it is, man. It's like it, it's like, you know, I guess I'll stop when I'm dead. Like, I believe you sleep when you die. Right. It's, you know, eventually at some point I have to slow down, you know, and my, uh, myself and my partners, we talk about it all the time. But it's like, you know, we still don't think we won anything. Like, and it's kind of crazy because you're like, man, you won, you won. And be like, nah, we didn't win. You know, there's more like. And I don't know what winning looks like in the true definition when you really think that you won, but I feel like there's always something else that you can do that you can push yourself further uh, to accomplish something greater, right? And that's, you know, it's just, I think it's the drive, man. Love to go back to your original just, question. Love what you said about just like knowing what's motivates you, you know? Like I, I was a collegiate athlete back in the day mm-hmm. and- like whenever, like when I stopped that, it was like, damn, I can't work out for shit. Like I just, I don't want to get up. I don't want to do anything. And I realized what motivated me was not disappointing other people, at least in that regard, not necessarily mm-hmm. business or anything like that. But when it comes to fitness, like you're not going to get up if it's just like, yo, I want that body. Cause you would have had that body if you really wanted it. Like what's that thing that motivates you? I like that. Oh, no, you got to find it. It's like right now it's like this shelter at home, right? I go to the gym normally three to four days a week. I don't work out at home. I'm like, I'm all messed up right now because I'm one of those people that act of going to the gym help motivate, helps motivate me to work out. Mm-hmm. So I haven't been working out, right, since I've been home. And, you know, some people are like, oh, you just got to figure out how to, how to work out at home. Well, obviously, it's not a lack of motivation as a person because I'm motivated to do all kinds of things. But physically, the act of me getting up and going to the gym so I can do my workout is part of what keeps me aligned. So I like I'm devastated right now. I'm saying they're not going to open the gyms up now. Eventually, mentally, I have to get around it so I can work out. But I've kind of already like decided in my head, like, you know what? I'm going to do a little bit. But until I can get back in the gym, I just know there's no way for me to stay on point or the fact that I can only work out in the morning. You know, like if I don't work out in the morning, I'm not working out. I'm like, I'm one of those See? people. You know, some people work out in the evening and they can't work out in the morning. I'm one of those people. I can't even focus when it comes to working out later in the day, because usually what's happened to me over time, and maybe you get used to the way your life operates, right? But my days get busy. There's a lot going on, or I might have to go to an event after work or something impromptu will come up. I'm so focused on whatever I have to do for my business that the gym in the evening can't interfere with that. And I can't even focus, right? So by the time I, even if I had to go and try to work out at seven o'clock, my mind is so all over the place. Right. But in the morning, I can go straight in, I can get it done and then I'm good and I feel like I got it accomplished. So, you know, so I definitely can relate to what you're talking about, you know, finding different motivations, finding different things that motivate us. Yeah. Earlier, you said um, 
you working in the in the mall that was you getting your degree if you were to map out a degree from like that experience and all of your experience what would those what would those touching points be what are those things that you had to learn in order to get to where you are now uh you know it's interesting so you know i always look at my my career right that you know i have i feel like i have three degrees right I was. I, have my, I went to college. Uh, I have a, a BS in political science, right? A minor in philosophy and a minor in fashion. Interesting mm. enough, but the fashion minor, I was already in fashion, so I just mm. took the classes. I had electives to get done, and by the time I got to my senior year, the professors that because I went to Old Dominion University in, in Norfolk, Virginia, the professors in the fashion department all knew who I was because every semester, different students would write a paper on me. Because you had to write papers on people that were in the industry. Well, people that knew me, hey, this guy, Dre, he manages legends at the mall and he's a buyer, right? So people knew that. So I was easily accessible. So by the time I met the professor, it was interesting. It literally was my senior year when I met these professors. And and it was a, and it was a trip. But, you know, that, that was a part of education. So you have your degree, right? In retail, I felt like that whole process of being a buyer and being a manager for let's say a, a sneaker specialty retail store, right? That in itself was a, was a degree that was education. You know, I, I became a manager really young. I was, I was still in my teens when I became a manager. I was assistant manager my senior year of high school. Was that? Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, my senior year of high school or towards the end of that, I, I probably became the assistant manager and I was a buyer. So, you know, I learned how to manage people. Which at that point, you know, to learn that at that early of an age, because obviously you're going to make mistakes. You learn what makes people tick. You, you know, I had to deal with the, you know, I was younger than some of the people I was managing. So I had to deal with the age thing, you know, being, a, you know, being somebody superior, but you were younger than them, like all different kinds of stuff. But these are like life lessons, right? And things that are shaped um, how you work and how you're able to proceed later in life. You know, I learned a lot about retail math and buying learned a lot about the industry from traveling and doing trade shows. So, you know, that whole process was was education, right? Then when I went to the wholesale side of the business, I could take what I learned from retail. Then, you know, I started learning about being a sales rep. That's when I de- developed a merchandising background. When I went to work at RP55, the company always operated like a small company. And when I first got there, it was smaller, but then they started growing. So, you know, you learn through osmosis. My desk was right outside one of the owner's office. And I'm one of those people, I, I soak up everything like a sponge, right? He he was also previously had been a sales rep before he, he was one of the owners of that company. But the way they were running it, so, I you know, the warehouse was there. I, I, I packed boxes. I learned about merchandising. The design room was in the back. So I would sit in the design room. I was you know, learning about running the business on their apparel side. So it's like, and you know, and I was there for five and a half years. So I feel like that's another degree, like, you know, being in that kind of environment and being able to learn all that. And then when I moved to New York, that's when I started the business. Right. And at that point I had to apply everything that I've learned. Now, I, you know, I went to college and college, I value the education and the experience because I feel like college, regardless of whatever you learn, just the act of going to school and learning, right? It should, you know, it, you know, the one thing, like even when I interview people and we look to bring people on for the organization, you know, college education is important. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't get in the, get around in the world without it. But the one thing that I know, if somebody stayed in college and finished and got their degree, they were disciplined enough to finish what they started. 
And usually you learn how to learn when you're in school. So I was able to apply that to what was going on, plus what I learned in uh, in retail, which and what I learned from being on the wholesale side and just from being around people that were running their businesses, small business owners, apply all those fundamentals and belief to building my own business with my partners. So that educational background, that's why I always feel like, yo, I got three degrees and I was able to apply those degrees to my business. I feel that. I I have a similar like retail background and I didn't go to the trade shows, trade shows or anything like that, but and I wasn't in fashion. I wish I was to this day, but um, my first job in high school was at a plate against sports. And for the first like two, three months of it, I literally showed up, did what I had to and kind of just floated by. Right. I needed that paycheck. But mm-hmm. as as time went on, I started to get more and more passionate about or and more and more interested in, hey, why was um, Nathan's sale high, average sale last week higher than my average sale last week? And I can look all this stuff up in the in the system, stuff that the owner didn't even know he can do. And I just started learning a lot about just the the background of um, I, I think the biggest thing that I learned in in that position was the importance of relationships and the importance that um, of building those and maintaining those relationships. Like I could still go back to the, the plate against sports and probably run into some kids that I, I sold their first baseball gloves to and stuff like that. And those relationships are some of the, are some of the, the most interesting relationships that I've ever built. But I also built, I, I took that and brought that to my, collegiate experience and I started building relationships my my degrees in sports management so I I started learning about I I really wanted to get into like agency life and I knew school while I knew it was important wasn't really my thing so how can I still become a sports agent by and bypass like the the whole like law school thing and I did a ton of research and realized that my way of doing that was I'm going to do seven year, get seven years of negotiation skills. So I went into sales immediately and I needed internships to do that. And I started building relationships with professionals in Milwaukee um, that really obviously had had something for me in regards to internships and everything like that. But if I could ever show up and be a racing sausage for the Brewers or be a mascot for a minor league sports team. I was there to do it because I knew over time it would help build whatever relationship that I was, I, I was building. And I remembered that all from my time in, in my high school position. And I feel like a lot of people um, growing up that didn't work in high school or that had the privilege to not work in high school or that, focused on sports in high school, which is 100%. Like I was still in sports and everything like that. But I feel like that first position in high school can do you so good if you actually just give a damn about it. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. Like even when I was in college, it's crazy because a lot of my, my boys I went to college with, you know, we're all still real tight. We talk every day. We're on a group chat. and and it's, And it's funny because most of them, a lot of them had not worked when we first got to college, right? And one of the things, but I was always working because I always worked 40, 50 hours a week the whole time I was in college before I got there. So by the time I got to college, I was already doing that in high school, right? So by the time I got to college, 
the time management part of college, I had it down anyway because I already had to manage my time. So I didn't fall into like some of that trap. You know how like freshmen will fall into the trap sometimes. The first, uh, their freshman year, they got so much time on their hands and they don't know how to manage the time. Well, you know, when you're working that much, you have to be able to manage your time or you're going to lose it, right? Yeah. But what I used to always tell all my boys, I was like, yo, y'all should just get a job, man. See if that's what, <laughs> see if that's what you want to do just for the experience. And it's interesting because a lot of my boys ended up working for Legends where I work. So work for different parts of it. So it's funny. We talk about it today. It's like, damn, Dre. Everybody worked there at one time, but it, but it was really cool that everybody got that experience. And that's what I always tell everybody. I'd be like, man, just get a job. It doesn't even matter if you only if you work part time, you just need to be out in the world working. You need yep. to experience like my son. I have a 20 year old son. Um, is he 20? No, he's 19. Shoot. I said 20. <laughs> he's 19. My son is 19. He's not. We won't tell yet. him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tell the yeah. He'll be 20. He'll be 20 in September. Damn. I Nah, but it's it's a trip though because my son works for Feature uh, in Calabasas, right? Huh. And my, my, yeah, so Feature has a store in Calabasas, and you know, since I live in Studio City, I live in the Valley, you know, and my son goes to school at uh, CSUN, so it's easy for him to get there when he was working there. And you know, it's a sneaker boutique; it's convenient, it works for him. And you know, this is really his first job, and it's a cool job. Like you know, he didn't have to. You know, I had a paper route. I worked at McDonald's. I worked at Little Caesars before I got the fun, glamour, glamorous mall <laughs> sneaker job. You know, I had like the other jobs, right? A, a line line chef at a country buffet. You know, but it's it's funny because my son, his first job, he works in feature, right? Yeah. And you know, this is a cool job. But you know, part of the reason why I wanted him to do that too is because I thought it would be a good experience. Now, uh, just to be working, and he enjoys working. You know, he uh. You know, he's not as much into like all the the fashion and the sneaker culture and all of that. I mean, he's aware of it and he it was always around. He, you know, he's more of an artist. But also what I would always tell him is there's so much art in this culture and like in street culture. And it was like one of those things where I'm like, I was dad, right? Oh yeah, that's just my dad. You know, he knows what I do, he knows I'm in the industry. But you know, some of it may have been like rebellion, right? Because uh my dad does that, I'm not gonna do that. But what I tried to get because he is an artist you know, to really show him how much art is in this. And, uh, you know, he's really exposed to it now and he gets it because it's so much more than, hey, my dad is just selling sneakers and jeans. You know what I'm saying? It's like, uh, you know, when you really peel back all the layers, you know, street culture in general and the fashion that surrounds it is pretty amazing. How many different things are involved in it and how like well-versed people can just be about culture and art and fashion and business and life in general all from this street culture that we're all a part of. So I feel that it's, it's crazy. You bring that up because I, um, in our season seven finale, uh, which drops next week, um, we had on Alexander John. Um, and he, if you don't know of him, he's from Atlanta and just massive dude. Um, Mm -hmm. and he, I chatted with him for, I chopped it up with him for a minute, honestly, like, I think the the actual podcast episode is like an hour, but like between us talking beforehand and then talking after, like we just talked for a while. And um, one of the things that we talked about on the podcast that was actually recorded, so I was pretty proud of myself, is he talked about how the industry has so much art in it and how much art, how much art goes into everything he puts his hands on and everything like that. And there's 
there's so much story storytelling that goes on within this industry that that almost gets overlooked because people just look at a shoe or a a, a t-shirt or or anything like that and if they don't know the story behind it or the art behind it they kind of just chop it up as a t-shirt or a shoe and until you actually decide to do some research or until you you have a conversation with somebody like um AJ he it it was very apparent that there's not only a, a ton of art that goes into the industry and a, a, a ton of uh, storytelling in the industry, but there's just so much passion behind every stitching or a, every uh, every little item that's being put out by these individuals, whether you're D2C or direct-to-consumer or you're actually working with somebody to get you into stores, you're there's so much little things that need to be done in order for the, the artist to be happy at the end of the day. And I think that's, there's, there's, there's just, there's just so many things in the industry that um, are overlooked because I mean, to be completely honest, I, I, my dad uh, knows that um, we are, I host this podcast and I told him um, about the Alexander John episode. And I was telling him, I was like, dad, he did a, uh, collaboration with uh brooklyn zoo and jay-z and uh, those sneakers uh sold at auction for twenty thousand dollars and my dad could not comprehend why somebody would pay twenty thousand dollars for a pair of shoes and i was like like he grew up in the 80s in chicago where somebody would get shot in in the corner of his house because they just picked up the new pair of jordans and he's like why why do you keep picking those up if you could just wear brown loafers like me they actually used to call my dad. I'm 100% Puerto Rican, and they mm-hmm. used to call my dad. Um, he lived on uh, basically in between two two gang zones. That's what his street was the border, and um, all the gang bangers used to call him. Uh, and I quote: "They used to call him Brown Boy, but because he always wore brown, because every other color that he would wear was associated with every other gang that was around, and okay. um, the the shoes that he would be wearing." He would never want to be wearing a pair of Jordans or uh, 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 any like he, he didn't even touch Adidas superstars because he was like, I'm just going to wear these brown loafers because I'm not trying to get messed with when I when I walk to work or when I jump on the bus or anything like that. And the the fact of the matter is. I feel like there's a generation of people that had to go through what my dad went through or maybe never got into the, the, the culture of what's going on even to this day that don't recognize the art behind it all. So just seeing that your, your son and the next generation is hopefully comprehending that. I mean, there's a ton of kids just buying stuff to buy, but they're comprehending that and they're seeing and hearing and understanding every story and all the time spent on these products. It's, it's it's inspiring um just hearing all these different stories dude i feel like that's everything like you look at film like all of us watch tv for the most part all of us watch whatever tiktok videos you know the amount of time and things that we don't notice that goes into movies like it's ridiculous it's like you only notice if it's bad and i feel like it's very similar just in fashion oh yeah man look at a movie all you gotta do is watch the behind the scenes or that after, you know, like the shows that come on HBO and you look at all that goes in oh, yeah. to the ideation and 
and the mood and what they were trying to accomplish. And, you know, and I'm not an actor, so I'm actually amazed when, when I hear like the, the, the art, the yeah. art of acting and how or the art of script writing and what they were trying to convey in the character development. And, you know, it's amazing. And if you really start to think about it, that's, that's what goes into so many things, right? You know, that's how yeah. fashion is. That's, you know, that's the art of building a brand. Like, you know, you know, you start to really see what a brand means and what went into building it. Like you take something as simple as our company, the foundation, right? Uh, you know, what the name means and where it came from. You know, it's it's a name, you know, the whole idea was when, when uh, we had to come up with a new name, you know, that was around the time when Heroes was coming on NBC and yes. the nemesis was the company, <laughs> right? It was the company, right? And and, you know, and it was like, to me, that was such a powerful name, right? And it's like, when you look back at the movie, The Firm, because mm. when you start to think of agencies or group, you know, it's like, it's this sales agency, that group, you know, but I wanted a name that when you said the name, the name said it all, right? So, you know, actually, originally I liked The Firm, but at the time, there was a store in Newport News, Virginia called The Firm. So we couldn't use that. My partners didn't want to use it. And originally they didn't even, they didn't love the foundation, right? Although we, we were trying to come up, it was really the best name that we came up with. And it ended up being a great name because, you know, and even to this day, like I, like sometimes I'll see somebody say The Foundation Group. I don't like that. That's not who it's like. It's like The Ohio State, right? <laughs> you can't put anything else on this name. The whole idea, the whole purpose of it it's not the foundation agency. It's not the foundation group. It's just the foundation, right? Everything is in the name. All the powers in the name. You don't have to add any other word to it. And literally, something as simple as that goes back to branding and why the name was chosen and why it's there. You know, and it's like, and then you know, say like a you know a brand for every great idea or every brand, you have to have a good foundation. So it's like the the base of the brand, right? Or the idea or the concept or whatever we're working on. But it's like, you know, just even looking at that, that's where the name came from. It comes from. It's not like we just said, hey, this is a new name. Uh, you know, it just sounds cool. Cause you know, sometimes people do that, but that wasn't even why the name was chosen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's fascinating, man. I I don't remember who I was talking to it about, but like the the combination of science versus like art you know and it like you just said like you're trying to build a brand every brand needs a foundation but can you talk to me about like just the creative process behind that like what is that foundation what does every brand need and then how do you go about like building upon that foundation you personally <laughs> oh me personally okay uh you know the art and the science of building a brand right so you know it also depends on what the brand is Right. Because you have fashion brands, you have uh, your marketing agency could be a brand, whatever, whatever you're branding, you know, a musician is a brand when it comes to fashion, um, which is for the most part what what myself and my partners work on. You know, one of the first things that that we look at and over the years and over time is, you know, is the name good? Like, yo, how many things out there have bad names? Mm-hmm. from the beginning <laughs> before you even get started and i mean and there's things out there that make make good product and you're you're looking at it like that name is terrible so you know you could save yourself a lot of heartache from the beginning like if there's a good name now it doesn't mean we haven't worked with things that may have had a bad name before but understanding the value of a of a good name versus a poor name is one thing 
then you start to look at the creativity behind it. Like how talented are the creators? Now, obviously there's some brands that we have now where our partners are creatives. Uh, two of my partners are actually creatives themselves. They're both pretty talented. But then, you know, the game is different now. So like, uh, you know, can't how good is the creative, the designer or the creative team behind whatever we're working on, right? And will they be able to create something that can be long lasting, that can have wings and can grow and be bigger? Then, then outside of that, you know, when we used to look at brands back in the day, we used to have to rely on others to be able to pr produce, ship and collect. Well, now we don't have to worry about that. We can do that part. So how sound is the business? Well, if we're running the business, then I know the business is going to be sound because we're sound business people. So it's like you can remove that from one of the considerations that you have to look at. And, you know, and now we live in a different world today where. When you start looking at developing brands, you know, it's, you know, your messaging has to be right. You you have to be able to com uh, communicate on the different platforms like, you know, social media. I just say, you know, my Instagram, I'm not really on social like that. Well, that's unacceptable for my brand because I'm private. I mean, for, for a brand that we own, my personal brand, I don't have to be on social like that. But for a brand that's consumer facing, it needs to be uh, on social. It needs to be built right. So really for us, you know, we just, you know, you have to start looking at everything from a from a 360 view, right? And it it's not enough like, yeah, the idea's gotta be great. The, the concept's gotta be great. The idea's gotta be great. The name needs to be great. The the design, the creative needs to be great. The actual quality of the product needs to be great. You know, the business structure around it needs to be great. So it's like, you know, and, and when you really start to think about it, it's hard. Like, mm -hmm. it's not easy. And, you know, and I'm applying this to fashion, but it's no different than like you guys have a brand and you got to think about everything that you had to put into building your brand with the podcast. Right. It's it's the same thing. So whatever we started to look at when it came down to brands, we're like, you know what? This is applicable to other spaces. Right. So, you know, now, you know, especially with being out in California, like we were always in fashion. We're partners in the tea company. Called Mori Leaf Tea with a. Uh, uh, her name is Julie Lee, one of the girls who used to work for us for almost 13 years. She recently left, started a tea company that's built off of Moringa tea leaves. And the name is good. You know, um, the message behind it. Uh, her, her packaging and design look great. You know, so what can we add to that? We can add the business and we'll take a shot. And, you know, we're all rolling the dice and hoping this is going to be the greatest thing. But you know what? She's in some great stores already. Um, people love the brand. It tastes the product is good. She uses high quality ingredients. It tastes good for people that want to drink tea. So it's just like, you know, so now we got to go out there and see if we can build a brand and, you know, Snapple buys us in five years. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, you know, and, you know, and then, you know, at one point we invested in a cannabis company. Um, it was a company. Well, not a cannabis. Yeah, I guess you call it cannabis. It was a company called Bebo and, and it got sold. Uh, I think it was last year it got sold and they were a brand uh, that that made pens and tinctures. And the whole idea was when it was first presented to us, they wanted to be the LVMH of the cannabis space. You know, they really targeted women, came in rose gold packaging. They did these real sophisticated events and they would have Sharon Stone come and and uh, one of one of the founders is uh, Scott Campbell. He's married to the actress Lake Lake Bell, you know. And 
they really built this sophisticated contemporary women's cannabis brand, right? And you know, the idea that you know how that business is all bro down, right? So the idea is like women aren't gonna want to go to dispensaries, you know, this is like the evolution of what's going on in the cannabis space, right? Yeah. And they built this brand and it was cool. And man, and it took two years, three years, it got bought and it was small. And I mean, they, it got gobbled up and hey, it was a good investment for us, but it's just, they built a brand. You know, one of the partners was Scott Campbell, the tattoo artist. And the other partner was uh, Clement Kwan, and he was a marketing director of Net-A-Porter. So like when you really start to look at what they had and how they built this brand and, you know, and there's plenty of cannabis brands out there. I can tell you this one was was pretty small when it got bought. And I mean, the multiple it got bought at, you're probably talking like 20 time multiple, yeah. 20, 25 times, like crazy, you know. Um, but, it, but you know, they built a very good brand, you know. I could say great brand, but at that point, you know, how many things are really great at the two-year mark? You know, it takes a little bit yeah. more time to become great, right? Right. When you're looking at like a business or a brand, um, earlier you mentioned like the importance of just like having that 360 view, like everything's great, not just not just one thing, right? You need the business structure, you need the marketing, you need the creative team, all of that. Um, if someone's like lacking, let's say their product isn't as good, um, but their marketing is really good. Would you just, I'm not saying like, you're going to tell them like, just drop your, drop your company. If someone's trying to build something, would you say they need all of those things? Or is it okay to just be really great? Like I've got a really good product, so I'm just going to go outsource this marketing part. Or do I need all of that now to have that successful brand? Nah, you could be successful with, with elements of it missing, but knowing what we know now, the goal is to try to check all the boxes, right? But uh, yeah, there's plenty of things out there. You know, I'm, I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head right now. But dude, Amazon's got a terrible UI UX, bro. <laughs> yeah, terrible, <I'm>, terrible, <laughs> terrible. Like the, the terrible UI UX. Yo, yeah, the website is just <laughs> oh my god, it's Trash. horrible to look at. But <laughs> it's but it's a great brand, you know oh, yeah. and. They have excelled. I mean, it's one of the biggest companies in the world, right? You know, they don't check that box. They, and at this point, they have enough money. They could, but it's probably one of those things. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And sometimes, <laughs> this is the thing about design. And it's funny that, that we're having this conversation. Sometimes things become intimidating. So I, I'll tell you, like, Karma Loop. Back in the day, it's interesting. Uh, Greg Selko, the founder of Karma Loop, he's uh, the the president of Phase Clan Inc. You know the esports team, yes. and, and you know, and I'm an investor in Phase Clan, right? And nice. it's funny because I remember back in the day when Karma Loop went and updated their site, right? Because they had the site, and Karma Loop as let's say a streetwear uh, website was doing the business. They they were the biggest one during that time. And aesthetically, you know, the some parts of the site were cluttered. It was it wasn't as aesthetically pleasing as some other sites, right? So at one point they went and updated the site. Well, when they went and updated the site, their sales actually went down when they visually updated the site. So they ended up reverting back to the way the site looked before because they felt like th their customer was used to the site being a certain kind of way. And actually they may have intimidated the customer when they actually made it look better. 
So that's another way to look at it. It was like, and it's kind of interesting when you think about it that way, Amazon, although I, I think they would benefit from their site being more aesthetically pleasing and looking better because of how wide their customer base is and who they sell to, it is a possibility that if they change their site, they could intimidate their end consumer. Yeah. That's a whole nother way to look at it. But, you know, as a part of what their brand is and who they're speaking to, you know, I only think about that now talking to you because I think about when Carmelo went through it. <laughs> um, now, for us over time, um, myself and my partners, you know, we just started to check all these boxes of all the things that we feel like we need in, in our space to, to be successful. And you still throw it all in a pot and you cook it up and it doesn't mean you're winning. All you're trying to do is give yourself the best chance, right? So even right now, you know, you look at what's going on in the global pandemic and the whatever they're going to call this one, because I know 2009 was the Great Recession. I don't know what they're going to call this one because uh, or 2008 was the Great Recession. I remember being around for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is something else, right? But what's interesting about what's going on in the world today is as crazy as the world is, and there is a lot of despair and, you know, and global economy is in the toilet. There's a lot of opportunity that's created in times like this. It always mm -hmm. happens. So, you know, there's, you know, there'll be time for new ideas. Um, you know, there's less competition out there. Cause obviously like, let's say if, uh, if a, there's retailers out there, well, if you're a strong retailer, this is like business Darwinism in everything you do. This is like survival of the fittest, right? So there's gonna be less retailers. So there's gonna be less competition. There's gonna be less brands. So there's gonna be less competition. Now, the people that are in an advantageous situation, like let's say some people may have a deep pocket, so it allows them to navigate through this and take advantage of the system and scoop up some businesses or brands or entities or whatever. There could be people that are like uh, myself and my partners, we're, we're operators, we're experienced in our field, but we know how to operate, right? So I'm not gonna say we got the deepest pockets, but we do know how to operate, we know how to run a professional organization and we know that we can help a brand or brands that that would need to be able to be sound from a business standpoint right now, right? And then it's just literally going through and navigating, but also understanding what works. So like, for example, if you're gonna start a brand today, let's say in the elevated fashion space, right? Um, well, you'd be crazy, like, because, you know, we have a showroom in Paris where we show a couple of brands. So even though, you know, a lot, most of our business is is mainly done in the domestic in the United States, uh, we do have some brands that we sell global, like Rocket is a global brand. What well, the idea now is if you were going to start a brand that you were going to show during Paris Fashion Week, well, this year is going to be rough anyway, because Paris market was already shut down. So there's no, there's not going to be any Paris Fashion Week in June. And everybody was talking about Paris Fashion Week getting canceled and the fashion shows. Man, forget the fashion shows. What really hurts is the market week. Because right now, Paris Fashion Week is pretty much the number one men's market. That's where all the buyers were going to buy for that level of retail. Mm. So now they're not going to Paris. Mm. So the smaller brands, some of the brands, so everybody's SS21 numbers, are going to be affected regardless of what's going on now because yes you can go do it digital and you can use you know all these systems drawer uh new order uh brand boom whatever all these systems that people use these b2b sites to help them place orders you're still not going to write as much business as if you could still have appointments with people right so that's going to be the effect paris fashion week 
being canceled is a big deal. The ripple effect that that's sending through the industry right now for brands not to be able to sell SS21. And they're saying, oh, we'll just put it on in September. Well, you can do the fashion shows in September, but the market season is closed by September for men's for June. Also, women's pre-collection is bought during Paris Fashion Week for men. So a majority of the women's fashion, because women's fashion week that they do in September, at the end of September, early October, that's really just runway. Most of the product that's being bought to sell in the stores is actually being bought during pre-collection. That's where people are doing the business. So if you really start to look at the effect that this global pandemic has had, yes, Q2 was messed up. Fall is messed up. Uh, Fall 20. Now, SS21 is going to be smaller. There's no way it could be bigger. So to go back to like uh, what I was saying about when you start to look at how to uh, to build a build a brand and and look at elements that you want to have in there, right? Well, like if I'm starting a brand right now in the elevated space from junk, I'm going to have whatever my diffusion brand is going to be from day one. That's just proper planning. So if you look at Fear of God, Jerry has Fear of God Essentials, right? Mm-hmm. Now, and, and you know, both brands do well, but if you know about the business, Fear of God Essentials is doing the business, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and 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 it's because the diffusion line, in some ways, especially in that space, can actually do more business than the main line. But it also allows you to be able to keep the main line true and build it the exact way that you intended on it being built. So, like, yeah, if I was starting a brand today, that's basically what I would do. One of the things I would do is I would have my diffusion line made. Now, maybe you don't ever make it to the diffusion line. But you know what? It's a lot harder later on to try to ideate and come up with it when you could have just came up with it from at the beginning, you know, or at least have it in the in the works that there's a plan for it. So it's just little things like that. I think the coolest thing about like your story and everything is that you you constantly if it, we've hit on it so many times but you constantly lean back on that everything that you've learned to this point but you aren't you aren't you aren't neglecting the fact that you're constantly learning that's and the fact that no matter any situation that you're put in it seems like you're always open minded and you're always open minded to the point that you're you're going to use whatever you're going to learn in tomorrow's meeting um you're going to use that and during the next meeting or or anything like that and it's it's really cool to hear from your perspective everything that's going on in this space and then in the in the entrepreneur space as a whole like i think there's something to say with you you don't have to V1 doesn't have to be everything, right? And you talk about V1, V2, V3, even like up to V10, like there's V1 and your first idea doesn't have to be the end all goal. And you can build upon V1 to create a better V2 and a V3. But throughout everything, you've it seems like you've stayed true to to who Dre is and your upbringing and everything like that. So what and I don't want to take up too much more of your time, so uh, I'll, fine. I'll just like this what is cool. what is like what do you think that one point or is there one thing that from your upbringing that you're like damn i'm I'm still leaning into that today 
one thing you said leaning into. Yeah. So like you're still, you're still like, you can go back to this one thing. Like for me, like my upbringing, I I was spoiled to be completely honest. My, I, I didn't grow up the same way that my parents did, but I can always lean back into or, and almost humble myself into my parents decided to grind to the point that they did to get a better life for me and my brother. And mm-hmm. I always think back to that when I'm complaining about, to be honest, when I'm complaining about bullshit that shouldn't be complain, complained about. And mm-hmm. is there something that you can go back to in like in your upbringing that you're like, damn, like, I'll never forget this moment where maybe mom did this or I, I decided to do this and it's always defined me to who I am today. You know what? It may sound cliche, but it's it's just it's about hard work, man. And it's like, you know, and, and I definitely get that from my mother, myself, my brother. Um, when when I when I think back and, you know, I didn't realize it. As much when I was younger, but my mom always worked hard. You know, she worked for the government, had a had like a good government job. You know, I grew up middle class, right? And it was, uh, but it's crazy because I remember even in high school, like my mom got volunteered a year for the city of Virginia Beach. You know, my brother played basketball. I think I was in band, and you know, even though she worked, she would be there. She was the the team mom for this, the that, the that, and then you know, and I and I look back, and as I got older, I was like damn, how'd you do that? I don't even know. But, you know, that's that's like work ethic. Right. And you you can gain that from from your parents. But and for me, whatever was always in my drive, I always worked. I mean, I was a paper boy when I was 13. And, you know, it, it's and I liked what other than the fact I like making money, <laughs> I I liked. What hard work did, it was like the you accomplish something, right? So I think one of the things that I've always leaned into is just working hard, you know, and and even to this day, you know, we, we were having a conversation the other day, we're talking about opening the office back up, you know, and coming up with a plan and what that looks like. And, you know, we, we took a survey for all our employees about things, if they had concerns about working and this and that. And see, I'm the, I'm the person that the first day that they say we can go back to the office, office is open. I'm working, right? Oh, yeah. Now, obviously, I have to be cognizant of my team. And it's not that my team doesn't work hard because they all work hard. You know, we lead by example. But, you know, my brother is my my COO. And he always says, yo, he said, the team knows who they work for when they're talking about me and my partners because we all work hard, right? And there's nothing that we're not going to ask anybody to do that we wouldn't do ourselves. Well, maybe at this point, we're to the point in our careers where, there are things that we probably wouldn't do, but there's nothing that they're doing that we have not done or would not do again if needed to be done. So, I, you know, for me, the lean in is, is the working hard. Like it's that, you know, and it's one of those things that I tell everybody, man, you can make up for a lot with hard work. You know, there's people out there, if they just work hard, that that's 80% of it right there. Because how many people work hard, they may not even have the talent, but the hard work could get them a long way. But if you work hard and you got the talent, oh man, sky's the limit. So, you know, that that's what I always lean back into is 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 the working hard part. Cause you can make up for a lot, you know, just by just by outworking people, man. Like, you know, I'm I mean, I'm not a dumb guy. Uh, you know, I think I'm pretty smart, but I know there's people much smarter. But I tell you what, I'll work harder. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's the thing. 
I'm gonna work hard to get to where I need to go. And and I think if, if people had that mentality, I think the one issue that I run into now uh, today, let's say with this generation, I want to sound like the old man preaching to a younger generation. <laughs> oh, gee. But you know, we talk about how how it was different. And I mean, I even look at my my uh, my kids, right? My my kids are have a, a privileged upbringing, right? And my oldest, he definitely has the the hard work ethic in him, like all of that. He'll work work his tail off. But also, I know that because he grew up different, you know, he is different. You know, he may not have, you know, he hasn't been exposed to the world the same way that I was exposed to the world. And I think what ends up happening is also just culturally, you know, we always crack jokes and call this the entitlement generation, right? And and it's funny because this is one of the things we actually have conversations about. And some of it is, it's because of the way the world is today. Like I think back, I was watching Real Sports on HBO one time, right? And they had a whole thing about kids playing sports and every kid gets a trophy, right? And and I think back when we were kids, everybody didn't get a trophy, right? I mean, when they said everybody got a trophy, right? It was like, it was like, and it, because we came up in this generation where they were telling, because they told everybody that everybody's special, which is positive because you want to teach kids to, to be very secure in themselves. But in this thing, when they taught everybody that everybody's special, it, it started to create an atmosphere where they said where people felt like they were entitled to this. So what ends up happening, and I see this, this happens a lot with young people. And not to say there's a lot of, and I, and I don't want to feel like I'm bashing young people because that's not what it is. What I'm talking about is just cultural things that I've seen where people will come up and they will, you know, they'll come out of college and it's like sometimes they'll want it and they haven't put it in the work, right? Or they'll feel like they deserve it but you don't deserve anything until you earn it. And I'm not saying that's everybody, but what I'm saying is you have a culture that has taught this to, to kids when they were coming up. And when they get out into the world, the world is different now. So one of the things that we've had to even learn is when we hire, because we are always constantly hiring younger and keeping people in there, it's a different way that you have to interact and communicate with this generation of employees as you bring them into your company and get them to become the people that you want them to be in your organization. Now, some of them, whatever their upbringing or whatever experiences in life or whatever has happened, they may already see it and it may be different. But it's that's one of the things that that we have noticed. And, it, you know, there, there is an entitlement that uh, that that, you know, you have to work around and make sure that you can get people to be as productive as possible. And, uh, you know, and there's also other things, you know, kids are tech savvy. They grew up in a different generation. There's all kinds of things. You know, I I, I look at even somebody like, uh, you know, even when you look at music, right? This is one of the things I always used to look at uh, Kanye, right? You know, I always say this thing, as soon as you're relevant, you're out of business, right? And I don't care if you're a brand, if you're an artist, if you're an entertainer, if you're anything, if you're irrelevant, you're out of business. Well, if you look at music, look at Kanye, how he remained relevant all during that time. Now, granted, he's he, extremely talented, but he kept reinventing his sound. He kept the youth around him. He kept that kind of energy. And you got to think there's other people that do that. That's no different than what we do in our business. You know, I, I'm 43 years old now. I happen to think I'm a cool 43 year old, but I'm not 20. I'm not 22. I'm not 25. You know, the world is different. Yeah. So obviously, you know, I can easily become that old guy, right? And no matter how relevant I believe I am, and I, and you know, and I study the game and I stay sharp, we all do. I need to have young energy around me because they're seeing things different 
in the way that I'm seeing it, right? There's things they're picking up on. Like when we were in Paris uh, last fashion week, you know, one of our brands, um, you know, all the young kids were hanging out there, the fashion kids, the kids that uh, Virgil was flying out for the Louis Vuitton show and, and Matt Williams was dressing for leaks and they were all hanging out in our showroom. And this is, and let's say the group of kids that's under 25 or young adults, uh, I shouldn't call them all kids, that's under 25, right? Mm-hmm. To me, there's a cutoff. There's the over 25, there's the under 25, right? The under 25, it's a whole different world, right? The way that they communicate, the, the way that they design their products, a lot of the time is different. You know, a lot of them digital, like people on Instagram, they're on social, like they're all friends. But I started to realize after the second or third day, half of them had only met each other during that Paris. They had never met. They had only communicated over Instagram and text. And it's just like, you know, it's amazing. Like this is a new way that people communicate, right? Or you'll meet people that because texting and digital has been so much a part of life during this time that the verbal communication uh, wasn't the same. It wasn't as required. So I've literally, <laughs> interesting enough, I, I, I had, I, we were working on a deal with somebody and I literally had somebody that as opposed to talking to me on the phone, literally the whole conversation would be over text. <laughs> and, and it like bugged me out and I humored it, right? And I did this, but part of it for me is I needed to understand like, okay, this is how this person's more comfortable, right? So I made an adjustment, but part of me making an adjustment because I could have made it so that they had to communicate with me verbally the way that I wanted to. But some of it for me is I want to learn. I want to make sure that I stay sharp because me understanding how this person communicate, that's my new customer, right? And this is how you stay relevant. You know, you, you know, a wise man knows he knows nothing at all. You have to be able to evolve and change with the game. And I think that that for the foundation is part of the reason why we're still here and why we've been able to be successful. And, you know, when you were saying to me about, you know, taking what I've learned in the past, but also being open to change. Like, yeah, man, I learn something new every day. Like if I stop learning, then I'm doing something, something wrong. I have to keep learning. And in the game is changing. And, you know, and whatever we're learning, you just keep applying it. I mean, every business I've ever been in every brand. We've had a lot of brands that we won with. We've had some brands that didn't work, but there's really no such thing as failure. Because even when something didn't work, you had to learn something from it. If we didn't learn something from it or take something from it, then that would be a failure. But I feel like everything in life, you learn something from that experience. You know, if it didn't work, there's reasons why it didn't work. There are things that you may not do the next time, but you got to go through that. You have to have the experiences. And that goes even back to the whole conversation about working. That's why when I was in college, I told all my boys like, yo, y'all got to go get jobs. I don't care if you work two days a week. You need the experience of working because how many people go to college, right? Get this, pick their major, decide that this is what they want to do. Now, sometimes they change majors, but how many people, you know, we all know people that go to college, they get a degree, they get out. And then they're like, I hate this job. I don't want to do this. So I was like, well, it would have helped you if you would have did a little bit of work when you were in school and saw that maybe you wanted to do something else. You know, it's funny you talk about being a, uh, you wanted to be a sports agent, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. That's literally what I was going to, you know, my mom had always told me she thought I'd be a lawyer uh, and thought I would be good at it. And I, you know what? I went to school, studied political science. That's why I was getting a BS. My plan was to be a lawyer. 
and I wanted to be a corporate attorney. And as a corporate attorney, I wanted to either be in entertainment law or sports management. You know, so, you know, and I ended up not doing that because I was in fashion and I enjoy fashion. And one of the things was I didn't want to go to law school because I had always worked. And they pretty much tell you when you go to law school, you need to stop working and focus on law school. And in my mind, I couldn't imagine not working for two years. Like it was such a part of my life, you know, the whole time I was in college, the whole time I was in high school, I had never not worked. I remember the day that I graduated from from uh, from college, you know, and all the parents were congratulating people and somebody walked up to me and said, well, wow, you ready for the real world? It's time to go to the real world now. And I was like, man, I've been in the real world. I was working 40 to 50 hours like this is going to be a cakewalk. Yeah. And, and the reality was it was because the idea of working through college and working full time. By the time I got out of college, man, I had so much time. I didn't even know what to do with myself. I was like, it, it was like, it was, it was incredible. Like literally did not know what to do. Could not understand it. And especially when I stopped working retail, because one thing about retail, look, and that's one thing I always say to people, people that work retail know how to work because you're working when other people are off. Right. Yep. And usually, especially people that excel in retail, if they're in management or, you know, or in, uh, accelerated positions there, they have to have good work ethic. So it was like all of a sudden when I flipped over to wholesale and Saturdays came, you know, at one point, I mean, I was off on Sundays a lot because I just made myself off on Sunday. I was doing the schedule. It was kind of nice to be off on a Friday night yeah, and to be off on a Saturday. I didn't even know what to do. I was like, what, <laughs> what do I do now? It felt weird, you know, every weekend to be off because when you work in a retail store, you're working like you're not getting the whole weekend off. You getting Friday. You working Friday night. I mean, it, it would have been irresponsible of me not to work at least Friday night or Saturday for a good part of the day running a busy store like that. Considering those are the two busiest days. Exactly. That's crazy, dude. Yeah, one I, thing. Good. Before I know you're gonna switch. I, I've got two things actually. First, really quickly, because huh? I know I don't have much time on this one because Izzy will kill me. Why? Why Face Clan? Out of all all these sports team, I'd love to hear your perspective. Uh, you know what? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny. <laughs> you say easy to kill you on this one. You know what? <laughs> I'll you geek know, out, man. It's dangerous. Uh, you know, I'll tell you the FaZe Clan thing. So the, the way that I got involved with uh, the FaZe Clan was uh, Greg Selko had started a new company called Wanderset. And it was a drop ship uh, online boutique. And the idea was it, it was supposed to be based on content. Uh, with influencers. So influencers would be on there. Uh, well, let's say celebrities. Celebrities and influencers could have their own. That that was one way to access it. So you could access it either through the brands or you could access it through, let's say, Jay Balvin was on there and he liked these brands and these products. That was just another way for people to shop. So huh. it was like a it was like a content-based shopping model. And when, when he first showed it, him and uh, Will uh, showed it to me, I really liked it and I uh I believe in it and you know they approached me for it for Kaplan for some of our other brands and I was like wow well send, send me the investment deck right and this was for Wanderset um and I invested in Wanderset and then at a certain point um the one of the guys that invested originally in what became Phase Clan Inc was an investor uh, became an investor in Wanderset. 
And then that's how Greg Selko got involved with Phase Clan. And at that point, uh, you know, I had a meeting one time. We were talking, I'm trying to remember what's a Skrillex uh, record label. Uh, I cannot Uh, remember what what it's called right now. But his office is in downtown, like in uh, uh, little little Tokyo, right in 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 LA, right, um, Japan Town. Uh, so I uh, I went to their office, and Rice Gum was there. And I didn't even know who Rice was, right? You know, this is the first time. He, uh, you guys familiar with Rice? Yes. Uh, from Cloud from Cloud Game. Well, back then it was Face Clan and Cloud Game, and Will kept telling me he's like Dre. This esport thing is crazy, and I didn't know anything about it, right? I didn't know much about the content creators, you know, how, uh, you know, some of the kids were creating content and, you know, that was my first time. So then I started doing research on it. And so Wanderset still existed and FaZe Clan and Clout Game were there, but it wasn't FaZe Clan as big as they are now, right? They, this was a couple of years ago, maybe two, it might've been almost three years ago at this point. And um, that's when I started to do the research and I started to learn about it. And Wanderset was still continuing. But FaZe Clan was taking off that eventually what they did is Wanderset and FaZe Clan merged, right? And the idea was for Wanderset to be able to do uh, the merch and the product. So uh, the Wanderset team took over the merchandising and the product of FaZe Clan. And uh, and then slowly FaZe Clan got even bigger and, and then they started raising money. And then FaZe Clan Inc. was formed, right? And Greg Selko became the president. And then my investment in Wanderset rolled over into Phase Clan. Now, at this point, I had got to know, I, you know, I knew Banks and Tommy and Alex. I knew quite a few of the guys. Uh, we had all did gumball together a couple of years ago. So that's when I first met, really met all of those guys. And we had a great time. And, you know, and I see them out in L.A. and go and hang out. And it's just amazing to me um, how big esports is and, you know, in the different layers of esport, you know, this is like artist management, but that yeah. that's really how I linked with FaZe Clan, you know, and even with us doing capital with FaZe Clan, this was something that we had talked about early on and we actually ended up doing it later. And it's interesting how timing is everything, right? By the time we did it, it was the right time because actually it could have been done a year before, but they had so much going on and they were so busy restructuring and setting everything up that we kind of just, didn't do it then. So by the time we did it, it was the right time. And, you know, and that ended up being a big project because if you really look at esports, you know, FaZe Clan had the champion projects and they had some other things, but that was really the first collection, right? That was a whole collection. And uh, and it, I thought it was a, a big thing. But the thing I like about FaZe Clan too is they're like, uh, you know, and I, you know, and I, I when I look at esports, they're like, the bad boys of esports. They have this massive oh, yeah. following. Yeah. They, you know, although they have a pro team, and obviously there's some other teams out there where there's some players that are better, right? Let's say the true esport, uh, not even true. I say the professional esport gamer, but all of them are gamers. You know, they they create a lot of content. So really, Face Clan is a media company. Yeah. It's very intriguing to me, and I think that you know esports. All of this content creation. Let's not. Let's not even just say. Let's just say because we, we group it all under esports, right? But let's let's say esports, and then you start looking at what's going on with TikTok and how they got the hype house and the clubhouse. And, you know, you got this whole thing about content creation and and the YouTube streamers because that's really where where it started. A lot of these guys were mm-hmm. doing the YouTube stuff, right? And I'm I'm just blown away at how big this has gotten and how you know even people playing video games. It's like 
You know, my mom said, stop playing video games and do your work. How many parents yeah. are telling their kids that now? You know, or the, or the TikTokers, you know, you look at, uh, what's that girl, Charlie D'Amelio. Interesting yep. enough, I know her father. Her father is from the fashion <laughs> industry. He, huh. he was a sales agent. He, he owned his own That's agency. That's crazy. He used to, 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 to handle Mitchell and Ness, I think, for the whole country at one point. Oh, wow. But his wow. daughters are are two of the biggest TikTokers. You know, it's... <laughs> It's amazing to me, just streaming and content, how this has just become a way for people to make revenue and build businesses. But, uh, you know, when I look at FaZe Clan, I look at them as being, you know, as a lifestyle brand, I think the brand itself is, is cool. And I think it has a lot of legs. You know, I, you know I've looked at some of the other brands. I, I know 100 Thieves are out there and I imagine yeah. there's going to be some more. Um, but, you know, I just think FaZe Clan is, uh, is interesting to me. You know, and that was the first one I had ever run into. I had never seen anything else in eSport. E Literally, my introduction to eSport was dealing with FaZe Clan. Because I know there's a lot of eSport teams <laughs> That's out a good there place raising to start, money, though. getting investment, you know. No, it's dope. I just I just asked, because um, I feel like one of the, not I feel, I know one of the biggest things missing from eSports, dude. I'm just waiting for a good, like, brand to drop. You know, outside of teams, mm -hmm. like, there's nothing. Absolutely nothing. I love FaZe, though. I've got... Got one of the jerseys. I'm not, I'm not going to talk about my favorite teams because it's not FaZe, but FaZe is a good one. <laughs> a good one. <laughs> no, but it's interesting. What you said right there is you said you're waiting for what? An eSport driven Just brand? Just a brand, bro? man. You know, like something like, like you look at um, like anything. What's anything that like, I'm a part of that, you know, like FaZe, like for sure, but that's team oriented. Just eSports as a whole, a brand that reps eSports as a whole. There's nothing. Like you've got basketball brands, you've got football brands, but nothing just as eSports as a whole that's done well. Like huge, huge gap there. Yeah, but I guess when you say you have basketball brands, like what? I guess, but like just sports. Let's say sports. Yes, like you have champion. sport brands. We've got the, we've like got the intersection. You, you, you are bringing a... So when I look at it, and it's interesting because I'm a, I'm a guy that looks for white space in brands, right? Since esports is really a brand, I mean, it's, it's really, a, let's say, a sport, right? You're going to have multiple sports. I mean, the brands that are going to come into it are going to be the sportswear brands. They're going to be the ones that come in there and do stuff. But as far as an esport lifestyle brand, you're right. There's not one out there. But what's going to be interesting is based on the way content is created and how you build that brand, because so much, I mean, obviously everything isn't centered around teams, but there has to be brand ambassadors yeah. or something that promotes that brand right Ninja and right now the, the biggest people that's promoting the space are let's say content creators so i i won't even say it's all the teams because some of the there's some pretty big people that aren't even a part of teams correct yep yeah ninja yeah like arguably arguably the biggest ninja he's i think what adidas yeah, yeah he signed a deal with adidas and he's not a member of a team Yep. But you're right. It, look, man, I, I can tell you another one. Why, why, why are you on esports? Think about it like this. Think about electronic music, festival yep. culture. Mm. Oh boy, I miss going to festivals. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, think about festival culture. There's no. That's true. There, that there, there's, true. there's no brand that's really centered around electronic music as big as it is. Now you have brands that are rooted in like hip hop culture and hip hop looking brands but you know the idea that you have all these festivals and yeah you have insomniac which is a which is a company and they make their own product but you don't have like a separate brand like you had been trill and kind of was teetering on the line and was doing some stuff and they kind of built it off the idea of doing festivals 
but there's no brand that's like really rooted in, let's say, being a festival culture brand, right? And uh, and, and people that are into this music, like I guess maybe you got Cyberdog in the UK, which is there. And you may have some different things, but considering how big there are brand, like how big brands are in other spaces, they're really there isn't like a big one. There isn't ones that like, if you thought about it right now, you'd be like, other than Insomniac, you probably wouldn't think of another one off the top of your head. So I do get what you're saying with the eSport thing, because, you know, I don't, I don't know of any eSport brands and obviously you're in it. So, you know, the only eSport brands are driven by the team. I mean, FaZe Clan is doing a lot of product. I mean, I see a hundred thieves. They don't really make that much product though. You know, their model is to build something that looks similar in some ways to what I'm seeing with FaZe Clan. But they definitely aren't churning out product the same way. So it's, yeah, uh, it's, it's fascinating. That is, you know, there's just, there's a beautiful blend with like sneaker culture and like any sports. So I'm, I'm curious to see what people do. I'd rep something. I don't know. <laughs> I hear that. I forgot what my other question was because you started talking about esports. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> oh, I'm done. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I kind of call you a geek because you get so geeked out and then you're just like, damn, I forgot what my next question was or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well Joy, dude, like, life, I man. appreciate you jumping on. Like you you drop some serious knowledge on this on this episode. Um I do have one one more question though. Um mm-hmm. what makes Shoot. you strange on purpose? <laughs> what makes me strange on purpose? We got two laughs, uh, two episodes and two laughs after <laughs> asking that question today. <laughs> you said two episodes and two laughs? Yeah, after after asking that question, I got a laugh both times. oh what makes me strange on purpose uh i don't know uh that's exactly what he said too (laughs) i i don't i don't know what makes me that is that is actually an amazing question i am stumped and i don't get stumped that often (laughs) what makes me strange on purpose hell yeah do most people get stumped when you ask that or people know? Uh, people typically know, honestly. Yeah. But dude, that's uh, this is the second one in the same day. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> to myself, like, am I strange on purpose? I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm strange. Maybe I am. I mean, it's okay I take if a I shot am, for you, you know? <laughs> Based off of uh, what I heard on the episode, uh, man, it's a hard Hey, look, it's funny. Um, I actually, I honestly don't have an answer for you. I'm stumped. But because of the way my mind works, I'm going to be consumed with this to to try to figure out what makes me strange on purpose. You know, it's. Wow. Yeah, man. This is going to be a snippet. It has to be a snippet that we promote on the podcast. This is awesome. (laughs) Yeah, man, I'm, I'm like, I, I'm, I, I am literally stumped, man. You got me. And I do not get stumped that much. I've, I'm one of those people. I feel like I always have an answer. I always have something to say. And that one really threw me off. I was like, wow. <laughs> well, cool, man. Like, I, no worries at all. Like, I, I think, like, the episode has a ton for, for like, so people can actually take a, a lot of takeaways. Wow. And. Um, again, I appreciate you jumping on. Where can people find out more? Where can people check out some of your work? Uh, I mean, well, my company is is the foundation, so it's uh, T H E 
Oh, well, our, our Instagram is at T-H-E underscore F-N-D-T-N.com. The website is www.T-H-E-F-N-D-T-N.com. Obviously, my Instagram is uh, at Dre, D-R-E underscore Hayes. Um, and, you know, I guess I can be Google. There, there's a couple of interviews <laughs> out there. You know, I've done a few podcasts and I've done some interviews over the year. Um, you know, pretty much most of it is about talking about the the fashion industry and different things that have gone on during the time I've been in it. Uh, yeah, but that's me. That's how that's how you find me. Find out what what I've worked on. You know, the foundation website, you know, shows what we've worked on during this time, who our current clients are. But actually, we're looking at uh, rebranding the website, um, redoing the whole entire website because and actually we're going to this is going to be a complete overhaul. And one of the things that we want to put in there, too, is we want to have like uh, an archive section just because we, we had a holiday dinner. Uh, the, the one that we had in New York uh, this past year and one of my partners, Daniel, took all the logos of all the brands that we work with and put them in picture frames, like on multiple picture frames and wrapped around the room because we had like a private uh, dining hall. And oh, it was amazing to see all the brands that we had worked with. And he actually left some off. So it was like the ones, and then we started identifying the ones that were left off. But the idea is, you know, we want to do something like that and put that there, right? Because, you know, that's part of your history, right? And with the kind of company that we are, these are there are all these brands that we've been involved with. And, you know, we work with small brands to like, we consulted for Under Armour for four years, you know? It's like we work with big brands and small brands. You know, we work with brands in fashion, we work with footwear brands, streetwear brands, contemporary brands. Uh, sunglasses. We had Super. We had Mosley Trials, which is part of Oliver Peoples. We had uh, G Shock. We had Pop Phone. Y'all remember? Uh, do, do y'all remember that time when people were plugging a phone that looked like a regular phone into their uh, into their iPhones, into their mobile phones, and was like using it was like a headset? Do y'all remember that? So they would plug in a what into their phone? They would they would plug a headset like a phone. <laughs> Like a phone headset. Oh, like yeah, from yeah. A, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, those were called pop phones. We did that. We were the ones that sold that. Huh. We were the ones oh, that, yeah. Damn. So, yeah. So, it's funny. And that was like one of those things. It was a company called Native Union and they were called pop phones. And the way that I found it was because one of my good friends, uh, Sebastian Chappelle, used to run and do all the buying for the electronic and accessory section of Collect. He was the yeah. one that did it all, right? And I was in there. He was like, and it, oh, they were called Moshi Moshi. That's what they're called, pop phones, Moshi Moshi pop phones. And he was like, Dre, you got to look at these Moshi Moshi things. And he showed them to me. I was like, those? He's like, oh, you wouldn't believe how many were selling thousands of them. And literally, that's how we got involved with it. So we've always <laughs> existed in like multiple spaces. You know, like even right now, we have a, you guys know what a soda stream is? Yeah. Yeah. So we have a brand called Arc which is the let's say the sexy water carbonator this is the one it looks it looks honestly like elegant as hell yeah this is the (laughs) one you want on your counter right it is like it's like one of those things you know how people have their kitchens and they have the crazy appliances it's not crazy expensive but it's something that looks sleek and something that you want on your counter and you know it makes water carbon uh carbonated water I have one in my, all I drink is carbonated water most of the time anyway, but it's just interesting because we're, you know, we've gone into the tech, lifestyle tech and lifestyle home goods space. And we will have brands 
or products that are in that space that are like these elevated brands in home goods. And that's one of our brands that we have here. We don't, we own the distribution for it. So it's a Swedish based company and we own the U S distribution and the U S website. It got picked as one of Oprah's uh, hundred favorite things like two years ago. And it's crazy. Like these things and they sell, they sell like crazy, man. And it's just, it's just a different space. And that's another opportunity. So my partner, Daniel, that is the space. So we've always done accessories and we all can't come from fashion. And then, he kind of stayed in accessories, like tech accessories and home goods. So that's a whole nother part of the foundation. Like some people in like, and there's four of us. So three of my, uh, three of us, people always run into in fashion. When we have like my four partner, Daniel, who's been there since day one, but you know, he does the New York Now show in, in New York. Uh, he does like, uh, you know, we sell Crate and Barrel and CB2 and, uh, uh, Williams and Sonoma and Restoration Hardware, you know, it's like he's yeah. in that whole other space. But, you know, it's, it's amazing because there's lifestyle brands that ex- exist in that space. And there's a ton of opportunity if you find the right things. Like, you know, so you have an Amazon shop where, you know, we were selling headphones to Best Buy and Target. Like we're selling arcs to Target, you know, that's just a whole nother space. And it's just interesting. And it goes back to what I was saying about being relevant, right? Yeah. As soon as you're relevant, you're out of business. So when we first started this company, it was like, how can we be the most relevant sales agency? And we were like, all right, you got to be able to do business with the most customers. So we always had a wide range of products and we literally were able to do business with everybody. So we took that same principle even to when we went vertical because we still have a diversity, uh, have a, a diverse range of products, right? Even for the things that we own. But we also have a diverse business model, you know, between licensing, owning and distribution. You know, it's not one brand, it's multiple brands and it's multiple, multiple business models, you know, and that to me is how you stay relevant. So that's legit. We appreciate you, dude. Thanks for jumping on the strange. Nah, no problem, man. man. Nah, man. Uh, Look, man, uh, thanks for having me, guys. This is uh, this has been fun.